0: Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience.
1: Welcome to Talks at GS. I'm delighted today to be joined by Jennifer Hyman, the co-founder and CEO of Rent the Runway. Jen founded Rent the Runway with her Harvard Business School classmate, Jennifer Fleiss, in 2009. Nearly 10 years later, the Designing Clother Rental Service has raised more than $200 million in venture capital and operates five brick-and-mortar locations and has over 9 million members, which is really extraordinary. Uh, Jen has been named to the Forbes list of the 12 most disruptive names in business and the Fortune list of the most powerful female entrepreneurs, among many other accolades in her, her Continuing career, she continues to disrupt the fashion technology industries as a champion for women entrepreneurs and equality in the workforce. Issues that all of us here care deeply about, and so I'm really pleased to be here. Welcome, Jen. Thank you for spending time with us this morning.
0: Thank you for having me. Absolutely, kind of surreal.
1: What surreal? I mean, it's CEO great. Of
0: Goldman Sachs. I mean, this is this is big. The
1: CEO, the <laughs> CEO of the CEO of Rent the Runway. I mean, this is big. <laughs> Okay, for this audience for this audience here, the CEO of Rent the Runway is just as important as the CEO of Goldman Sachs. So let's, you know, I always like to, when we, when we have these talks, you know, when you look at someone that's achieving, you know, as much as you're achieving, you know, at, at this stage in your career, you've got to go back and just start at the beginning. So I have to ask you a little bit just about your, your family and your childhood and kind of what motivated you. You grew up in New Rochelle, New York, which is not far from where I grew up. Um, And so tell me a little bit about kind of growing up in New Rochelle and kind of what what you think about your childhood has had an impact on uh, your professional ambitions as you're kind of moving through your career.
0: Yeah, so I grew up the oldest of four kids Mm -hmm. and one of my younger sisters is severely autistic. So it really changed the dynamic In my family, number one, my mom had a big career in finance that when my sister was born, she basically opted out of the workforce because at that time, it it wasn't a conversation like who's gonna stay home with Sherry. It was kind of obvious that my mom was gonna stay home even though in reality, she probably had the, the bigger prospects for her career. And what I think it does when you have someone who 24 7 needs care so my sister isn't super verbal she can't live independently and growing up there was a lot of spontaneous surprises Mm -hmm. that would happen and the thing that i learned from it is number one in the 80s a lot of people when they had a disabled person in their family they'd keep them at home And my parents were very much like, we're still gonna go out to restaurants, we're gonna go to the same hotels that we would have gone to, like we're proud of who we are. And yes, if these abnormalities happen when we're out, like we're just gonna laugh about it and be proud of who we are. And I think that that was important. And the second thing was this acknowledgement as a kid that I was on a team, that my parents really couldn't do it alone, and that, We all had to collaborate together in order to just make the family work. Like, my parents were physically and emotionally exhausted by the day to day life Mm -hmm. of raising someone who is autistic. So, that kind of team mentality that life is better as part of a team and that you need to actually lean on other people and that your role needs to be flexible. Like, there were times when I was younger where I, had to assume responsibilities that felt more parent-like, right? Um, as opposed to just being a kid, and I think that that really framed things for me in terms of New Rochelle. New Rochelle is a super diverse town, and mm-hmm. the high school was incredibly diverse racially, economically, and I'm embarrassed to say that it is the most diverse environment that I will likely that I've. I've lived in to date and that I will likely be a part of because as you go through life your circles become more and more homogeneous Mm -hmm. and I think that that experience really framed me to go to school with friends who had to worry about what they were gonna eat for lunch Mm -hmm. and when I was doing extracurricular activities and focused on what college I was gonna go to had to go to two jobs after work after school so I think that thinking through the the appreciation that I have that I'm not in the position that I'm in right now because of just me, because of my hard work, but because of a lot of luck that I grew up with a specific set of advantages, and that's really defined who I am as a leader to acknowledge that most people in the world don't have those set of
1: advantages. Sure, sure, it's a a great perspective. you went off to college, went off to Harvard, um, and you know, as you, as you were thinking about, as you were going to school, like anybody else, you're, you're studying, you're going to school, you're having a great experience, I assume, in your college days, but what were you thinking about in terms of what you wanted to do after school? Because you came out of school and you had a bunch of different jobs and a bunch of different opportunities. Talk about kind of how you started your career and some of the things you did right when you came out of school.
0: Yeah, so the first day of my senior year of college was September 11th, 2001. And I had thought for many years that I was going to be a journalist. And I had worked in journalism the summer of 2001 and had seen kind of the type of sensationalistic stories that had been covered. And I ended up writing my thesis on how this mega-merged... Business structure in the news media had affected the content that we all received around September 11th from network television, and that, as a very idealistic kind of 21-year-old, that disillusioned me from going into journalism. I was like, <laughs> you know what? If I'm going to be in a career where I make money, like, let me go into something that I don't think is like a, bu- a public good, like the journalist. The media is really here to educate people. So. I decided to make a decision to go to what I thought would be the most chaotic environment to work in, because I always had this thought process that in chaos, like my family growing up was chaos, and I think in chaos exists both fun Mm -hmm. and innovation. So I ended up working for Starwood Hotels because no one was traveling. After September 11th, and it was run by this really visionary founder named Barry Sternlich. and I thought, you know what? In that environment, it's going to be entrepreneurial. He's open to big ideas, and I'm going to be able to have a creative job.
1: So, what was your what was your first job at Starwood?
0: So, my job was called Strategy Analyst, um, but what I did was a few months after I started, I had this thesis that we had entered the experience economy. And I cold emailed the president of Starwood at the time and asked him for $2 million to start a wedding business. And my thesis was that people were getting married later and they didn't want pots and pans for their honeymoon, for their wedding and that we should start the first honeymoon registry in the world and an associated business to cater to all aspects of the wedding experience. And I mean, this was a crazy thing to do, because I was 21, you know, Starwood has a few hundred thousand people that work there at the time. i go to talk to the number two guy in the office, and his response was like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And I went back downstairs to my boss, and I said, he approved it. <laughs> Because, you know, he didn't say no. (laughs) So I ended up spending the next three years building out this honeymoon registry, a wedding business for Starwood. Starwood. It became this $50 million a year business for them by the time I left. And it was really cool because no one reported to me, so I had to influence hundreds of people throughout this global organization to do things for
1: me. That's a remarkable story because I hadn't I hadn't heard that part of the story. But you know, knowing Barry, Barry's a pretty entrepreneurial guy. Yes. But Starwood was was a company; it wasn't a little entrepreneurial business at that point in time.
0: Yeah, there was. Oh, it
1: bought. I mean, it, it, had, it had it had merged you know, that the, it had merged with ITT yeah. and Sheridan and all, and all the infrastructure of that, you know, in the late 90s. And so, I mean, this was a, this was a real company. It wasn't just a, an entrepreneur. Yeah, no, it was a
0: real company. Yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, it's, it's, it's an extraordinary story.
0: Yeah, no, it was, it was really fun. And it was this lesson that, you know, you could have the best ideas in the world, but fundamentally everything comes down to likability. Like, I was able to implement this because people liked me and because I built relationships with these people all over the world where I was asking them to go out of their way to do things in 2002 that were really hard, like build me a new website, or take all new photographs of our top 150 hotels that might be applicable for weddings or honeymoons. I mean, things that actually required money and effort, and it was, I was leading without any direct reports Mm -hmm. so really learning how to lead through influence so that was an incredibly. so what happened what happened with the business it still exists today
1: and it it, did it get spun out of starwood it's in starwood it's
0: no it still exists within starwood starwood was the first company in the world to ever have a honeymoon registry and Mm -hmm. when i left starwood there were people that took over the business and grew it and it's a much bigger part of their business today than than it was in 2005 when I left.
1: And so you left Starwood, and what did, what did you do next before you went to business school?
0: I worked at a startup uh-huh. in LA called WeddingChannel.com, who had been a partner of ours at Starwood, and I sold advertising on the internet in the early days. I was basically dialing for dollars and had- Good experience. Yeah, I had people reporting to me, and everything in life is about sales, so learning that early to run a sales team And I had expected to go to Hartford Business School right after that experience. I had gotten in, but one of my other sisters was diagnosed with cancer when I was living in LA. So I decided to quit my job and move back to New York and defer business school until she was healthy, Mm -hmm. which she is right now. And yeah, it was, and then I ended up taking a job at this company IMG after Ted Forsman had acquired the company. And that was actually a really interesting experience because it was the worst experience of all time. (laughs) (laughs) From from a career perspective. I mean, talk about like a hotbed of sexual harassment, cruelty, a horrible environment to work in. And and I'm not understating this at all. (laughs) Um, How long were you there? I was there for a year and a half. And I think that it was actually really important, because I think, number one, I had to develop a really thick skin. I was the only woman in an 80-person division. You were out in LA. I was in New York. You were in New York. Okay. But number two, it really framed my business school experience, in that I made this promise to myself that before I went to school, that I didn't really care what job I had when I left, but I had to be excited when the alarm went off in the morning. And that I had to work with people that I loved, that I respected, and I wouldn't put myself in an environment anymore where it felt like a dreaded act mm-hmm. to go to work and to wake up.
1: So you went to Harvard Business School, and what's talk about there must have been an aha moment. I mean, you're you're you and your co-founder, you're just sitting around, you know, having coffee one day. And you're like, hey, let's start a business. I mean, what, 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 what was the aha moment? What, what prompted the beginning of Rent the Runway?
0: Well, I was home in New York for Thanksgiving break, and I was at my younger sister's apartment, and she had actually just gone to Bergdorf Goodman, and she had bought a two thousand dollar dress as a twenty five year old to wear to a wedding that she had that weekend, and at the time, this was more she was paying more than what she paid on her rent. It put her into credit card debt. And I'm there in front of her closet that was filled with other beautiful dresses, kind of yelling at her, like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you wear one of these other dresses again? And her response was, everything in my closet is dead to me. I've been photographed in it. The photos are up on Facebook. I need to wear something new. And to me, that was this light bulb moment that we were having a conversation about, the experience of wearing something that she felt confident in, and the asset, the photo that would exist afterwards that she would use to brand herself to her thousand friends on Facebook of how great she did look and felt. And that she actually didn't care about any of the items that she had already bought, like they were dead to her. And in fact, if you think about the closet, the closet is this story of like what once was. Like, these are the jeans that used to fit me. This is the dress that was in style. (laughs) This is the thing I want. You know, this is the thing I wore on my first date with my husband. You know, and I thought, you know, what if the closet was really a story of today, of the future, of how you want to feel? So I had this actual idea for putting the closet in the cloud, for having a subscription to the closet. However, I thought like it was too ahead of its time. This was 2008. So,
1: there was no cloud yet.
0: Well, there was also no sharing economy. Yes, absolutely. The only business that existed in the sharing economy was Netflix. So I came back to school. I did randomly have lunch the next day with my friend, Jenny. And I said, what do you think about an idea to rent dresses for special occasions? You know, Every woman has that feeling of opening up her closet and seeing the mountains of regret (laughs) of all of those dresses that we've bought and we've only worn once. And this would be something that. What if we were able to rent them instead? And her response to me was, "You know, that sounds really fun. Let's start working on it." And that's what we did. Off well, you did. Yeah, we cold emailed that afternoon, Diane von Furstenberg. So mm-hmm. we didn't know Diane, but but we sent an email to 15 di- different iterations of her email address, <laughs> and one of them went through.
1: And she actually responded.
0: Well, someone in her office responded in like Uh 32-point hot pink bubble font, (laughs) (laughs) and she said, I'll see you tomorrow at 5 p.m. And so we put on some DVF dresses and got our hair done and drove down to New York and introduced ourselves as the co-founders of Rent the Runway.
1: That first day?
0: 48 hours after having the idea.
1: Not incorporated, not set up.
0: Incorporated? We didn't even have an idea. (laughs) It was like, let's rent dresses. We were iterating it in the car ride on the way to her office. That's awesome. You know, never turn down a meeting.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's a good lesson here at Goldman Sachs. Never turn down the meeting. (laughs) So you show up, you show up, okay? And look, not every idea is a good business, but you're iterating as you go. So talk about the discussion with her and what happened.
0: Oh, my God, she hated this idea. <laughs> she, uh, the, the initial idea was, what would you think if we took your currencies and inventory when it was in stores and we rented it for 5 to 10% of the price? Obviously, her response was, no, that would cannibalize my entire business, that would dilute my brand, and who do you think you are?
1: basically coming in here to... to Oh, and it's not like Diane von Furstenberg was having a problem selling out each season of her inventory.
0: Not at the time. <laughs> so... And... <laughs> so... <Touché. laughs> you know, I think that this was a really critical moment in that she responded with a no and as opposed to walking away i started just asking her questions about what she disliked about the idea i decided that there was like really fear underneath her no and that the more we could engage in a conversation and and lead to like a positive interaction that it might give us some insight on what we should do and so what it ended up being about an hour conversation and at the end of the meeting she said that You know, everyone actually likes to think that all my customers are in their 20s because that's what I want them to believe. But in reality, most of my customers are in their 50s. So if you can make me relevant to anyone under the age of 50, that would be interesting to me and I might work with you. And I realized at that moment that that could be a real industry value proposition. You know, in order for a business to really take off, you need both a customer value proposition, but you also need a supplier or an industry value proposition. And I understood that this was an industry that was being completely disrupted. Many of the designers at that point didn't really understand yet how quickly that disruption would happen. But customers just weren't shopping in the same way that they had been before, and that this was a way to start.
1: Right. So from there, yeah, you walk away. Yes, and you're like, okay, she said no, but let's go. Let's well, go. Well, no, do this. from there
0: we said, can you introduce us to some more designers? And then I cold called. I, I like cold calling people, so I cold called uh, the CEO and the president of Neiman Marcus at that time because I decided who's most likely to hate this idea and destroy me. It's the head of the most prestigious department store in the U.S. And I got a meeting with the president, and he said. I said, what do you think about this idea? And he said, "Uh, you know, it's a great idea. Women have been renting the runway from my stores for decades. (laughs) It's called buying a dress, keeping the tags on, and returning it. (laughs) And I said, how often does that happen? Constantly. He said, 70% of the time. And. I mean, I gave him a weird look and I was like, if you know that people are stealing from you, how come you don't stop the behavior? And he said, I can't because the same woman who's renting the runway from the dress department is buying 10 pairs of shoes downstairs. Yeah. So it's our best customers. And it was, and he also said that the number one return day of the year is January 2nd because women have been <laughs> renting the runway for New Year's forever. So I thought that could be a big opportunity for us. But I realized, Okay, this gives me an opportunity to survive. I can take away the piece of this business that they don't care about. Yeah. So this is a negative margin customer for retailers, people who are buying dresses. So if I start renting dresses, they're gonna give me some airspace. They're not gonna acknowledge me or care about it that much. And I could actually build the foundation of my business during that time.
1: But so how do you, how do you scale this because the obvious you know, you need a supplier. You need dresses. You need sizes.
0: Yeah, we had you to raise dis- money.
1: Okay, and so you go out. What's what's how much capital do you raise when you started?
0: We raised as much as we could, which was we 1.75 million dollars from Bain Capital. Mm-hmm. We raised it while we were in school, and it was enough to buy an initial slate of inventory from designers, to develop our first website. You know, hire our first team members, but it was pretty, everything was pretty bare bones at the beginning.
1: Was it was it localized or could you do this? Could somebody go on the website in New York, California, you figured out how to get to We
0: them? launched all over the country. And actually the day that we launched, we ended up on the front page of the business section of the New York Times. So we had 100,000 women sign up in our first week, which blew out our our sales projections for year one over the first three weeks of the business. So it was kind of off to the races from the very beginning and we were working 24 seven. I mean this was a time when we would transition our team at 3 p.m. to going to our local dry cleaner which is where we housed the inventory at the time because we were the ones pick packing and shipping the orders.
1: And so this had to be very difficult to scale initially. I mean, in those days, as you say, you're going 24 hours, but it's growing like this. You've got to continue to expand. Your I
0: mean, input. we were holding things together with like paper clips and scotch tape at the beginning and praying that customers would, that if we gave customers a good enough customer experience. Come back. That they would come back and and give us a break on the fact that there would be mistakes.
1: So that whole that whole experience of that that kind of rapid race to get it all to work, number one takeaway that you look back and say, you know, this was kind of the key thing I learned there that's really helped as you built a much bigger business?
0: I think the key thing I learned from the beginning is that I was running a logistics and technology company. Mm-hmm. So beginning of Rent the Runway, I thought I was gonna outsource my technology and my logistics. Fast forward 10 years and 90% of my employees are engineers or work in logistics and those areas have become both the core competencies and the barriers to entry of the business. But if you think about what we really do to actually put your closet in the cloud, it means that we're providing you this physical experience of getting new clothing every single day, presenting it to you in perfect condition, receiving it back from you, turning it around, and sending it to the next customer.
1: Big logistics business. So
0: that was an aha moment, and thank God we realized that after we launched, because neither myself nor my co-founder had any experience in engineering or logistics, and it might have scared us away from even doing this in the first place had we realized how intense this business would be.
1: So... As the business grew, two years ago, you expanded the, the initial model with unlimited. Yes, and that's now fifty percent of your customers are unlimited customers. Is that
0: um, right now over fifty percent of our revenue is coming, it's coming from, from our subscription?
1: From your subscription. And so, talk talk a little bit about how that's changed the business because you're really building a it's becoming a subscription model, and it's it's a real experience. It's a completely different experience to be a subscriber multiple items coming through. You really are now. Your, cloud, your closet really is in the cloud yeah. if, you're, if you're an unlimited so subscriber. We
0: had to first normalize the behavior of renting clothes. So prior to Rent the Runway, women had never rented clothes before. And mm-hmm. it was easier to do that around a special occasion, a gala, a wedding you were going to when you knew that you were going to buy something that you were likely only going to wear once or twice. And then we started hearing from our customers that they loved Rent the Runway, They were renting from us a few times a year. But the thing that was actually the most important occasion in their life was going to work. And that there was this massive financial, emotional, and time-based tax that was placed on professional women when they had to show up dressing for the job they want every single day. And they were asking us, hey, can you enable me to rent for work? And that was really the birth of our subscription product, where we thought about how do we create a service where people could have clothing on rotation and use it for this primary use case of work. Now it's two and a half years later and our average subscriber is using Rent the Runway 120 days of the year as a substitution for going into her own closet or buying something new and her number one request from us is she wants to use it more days of the year. So it's remarkable consumer behavior change to be running a business where people were using us, let's say, four times a year before, and now they're using us 120
1: times a year. It's remarkable. It's also an incredible business model that you've created a business that people want to use 120 times a year.
0: Yeah, I mean, I recently found out that the average American only buys coffee 85 days a year. So I was like, the fact that this is more ubiquitous right now than coffee is,
1: is a good sign. How many people here only buy coffee 85 times a year? I mean,
0: I buy hey, it. I'm at, least,
1: I'm at least 365 here. plus for definitely, sure. Okay, definitely. come on. All right. I want to see who those Americans are 85 times I'll a year. I'll send you the data. Okay. <laughs> so last week you announced a partnership with WeWorks where you said you want to simplify the lives of women. Talk about the partnership and talk a little bit about your thinking behind it.
0: Yeah, so Okay, so what's the goal here? Goal of what we're trying to do is to increase usage. We wanna make it fiscally irresponsible for someone to not have a subscription to fashion. How do we do that? Number one is we give you more assortment, we give you more reasons to rent. So let's say you're going skiing five days a year, we need to have your ski jackets, we need to have things that you're gonna use for that. Let's say you're going to the beach X number of days a year, we need to have applicable assortment for all of the various use cases. The second way we up your usage is we make access easier. We mean getting you inventory quicker and facilitating that turnaround in an easier way so that we remove friction from the experience. So one way that we thought to do that is, well, where are women going every single day? They're going to work and What WeWork does incredibly well is not only cater to a whole class of would-be entrepreneurs and people who are starting off their careers, but they also situate real estate in the most dense areas where all of us work. So the partnership is to have drop boxes in WeWorks all over the country so that women could very quickly drop off clothing they've already worn, new slots will immediately open for you, you can pick inventory that you want, clothing that you want on your app, and receive it same day or next day. So it facilitates a much quicker turnaround time. What we're also doing with WeWork is we're going to put a physical closet into WeWorks. So imagine you go, you return items to a WeWork, and then you could just open up the closet, and take a new blazer for that day. But
1: why not at Goldman Sachs? I mean, why not a Dropbox at I Goldman Sachs? I would love to do why that Goldman Sachs. Why not a physical closet at Goldman Sachs? I mean, you could take all the WeWorks downtown, and there are more people in this building than there are in all the WeWorks downtown.
0: <laughs> the fact that you're campaigning for this right now, this was the goal.
1: Okay. <laughs> goal. Mission accomplished. It's, it's actually, it's a great idea, though, because you're... you're if you think about the dynamic of everything you're doing, you're making it, you're making it more convenient. Be where, be where people are that are good customers and try to make that experience more seamless.
0: One of the other really fascinating things that we started observing this year is that the business, so for, for 10 years the business has been very viral. So 95% of our customers have come to us via word of mouth for 10 years. We haven't really had to spend money marketing the business. Then we launch subscription and we see something fascinating, which is that the virality of the business increases 10x. And the reason for this is you're showing up to the same desk at the same office 120 days of the year, and now you're wearing this new fabulous outfit you're this walking billboard for Rent the Runway. And amongst your female colleagues, it sparks a conversation like, oh my God, you look great. You used to wear black every single day, and now you're wearing color and print and all this cool stuff. And, and what we started seeing is network effects that other women in the office would sign up and that all of them together would become more sticky. Because every day you're seeing your colleagues Wear different items so you get to curate what you want next based on what they're wearing. You see how women are styling and putting together their outfits. So it's a way to kind of um, merchandise and curate the assortment. So we started seeing these network effects in offices where all of the metrics seem to go up and to the right right when women do this together. So we're now trying to provide women with ways to kind of hack the subscription so that they can do it together, in a group, um, and bring some of that social behavior that they're doing offline, bring it into
1: the online experience. That's really smart. You know, you're definitely having an impact broadly on the fashion industry. You're buying a ton of clothes. You're obviously have to be affecting what designers are producing. You have to be affecting uh, you know, what's getting sold, you know, in the context of this, talk a little bit about how the fashion industry is evolving because of the size of your business and how your business is starting to change aspects of the fashion industry.
0: Okay. So to start out the fashion industry is a $2.4 trillion industry because it's one of three things that as consumers, we all have to do every day. We all have to eat, we have to go somewhere, we have to get dressed. So that's why clothing is such a huge global industry. There's two components of the industry. There's um, what I call fast fashion, and fast fashion composites places like H&M, Zara, Amazon, Walmart, any place where you're gonna buy a high quantity of apparel at very, very low prices, often made in very low quality. And over the past 30 years, we've shifted as consumers from buying in, from, from brands or from designers to buying from fast fashion. And what that's done is fast fashion has effectively primed and created the rental market. So for the past 30 years, they've taught us that when you go into a store and you buy something for $15, that it's okay. Like maybe you're only gonna wear it once. You're effectively renting from H&M or you buy something you know it'll fall apart after you put it in a washing machine two or three times, you're renting. That is actually a major global shift that's occurred because a generation ago, no one of any economic class would have purchased something if they knew that item
1: would would
0: deteriorate or they wouldn't use it. So what we've decided to do is understand that fast fashion has actually provided a real fast fashion understands the customer Mm -hmm. a lot more than the designer business has what they understand is that customers want variety they want the ability to constantly express themselves differently they want to wear new things every single day but with fast fashion you have this rush of you're able to have an impulse buy you're able to try something new the sugar rush of doing that, and then the ultimate crash of having that live in your closet and know that you're gonna eventually throw it away. So what we've tried to do is say, okay, we're gonna give you the rush without the crash. We're gonna give you the rush with the real designer item at the fast fashion price point so you could have all the variety that you want, but do it with the real thing. So to designers, we are the only entity that's helping them to compete with their true competition, which is Amazon, Mm -hmm. because we're enabling a customer to get a designer piece at a mass market price point, but we're preserving the luxury prestige and the luxury premium. So we're not actually desecrating their product in the same way that they used to do a partnership with Target, let's say. You have Missoni for Target, but it wasn't real Missoni product. So, Masoni kind of liked it for the upfront check, but they didn't like what it did to it dilute did to the brand. their brand. Yeah. So, the change that's happened in the industry, and it's partly because of Rent the Runway, but it's partly because the world has really woken up to this, is that the industry, the designers understand 10 years later that they're not competing against each other. They're competing against Amazon. And when you're competing against Amazon, you need to be a lot more innovative, you have to be a lot more willing to experiment, and you're really fighting for your life.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's very, very interesting. You know, you talked about, you talked about technology, you talked about logistics, you have a huge dry cleaning facility, you know, out in New Jersey, right? Yes. It's, it's the largest dry cleaning facility in the world, is that yes. correct? Okay, I mean, that's, I mean, that's a remarkable, you know, little tidbit, you know, where's the largest dry cleaning facility in the world? I'm a dry cleaning world? mogul. Yeah, I, I you know? <laughs> It's actually, it's a pretty good business, so I'm told. Um, but um, quality control you know, in this whole process has to be paramount. Talk a little bit about, as you built the logistics, as you built the infrastructure, how you developed a system, and how you use technology to make sure the execution was at such a high level, because it's not an easy thing to execute well.
0: Yeah. I mean, how we make money is we're an asset utilization business. Mm-hmm. So we take an asset, this blazer. And we have to turn it as many times as we can in order to make as much money from it as humanly possible. Until it's gone. Until it doesn't look brand new anymore. So we have to be experts in restoring this blazer to perfect condition whenever we receive it back from a customer. So in order to do that, number one, we need a lot of data. So we need to understand everything down to the factory this was made in, how it was stitched, what chemicals should be used in a dry cleaning process in order to preserve it in the highest quality. And so we have a kind of a treasure trove of intellectual, of IP on every single unit of inventory right now. And in fact, 50% of our units, we're going back to designers and giving them feedback on how to alter the manufacturing of that product in order to produce it in better quality. The second thing is we've had to vertically integrate. So in order to restore it to perfect condition, you need to not only have a pick pack ship operation, but you need to focus on having essentially manufacturing type functions within your operation, like dry cleaning, like a seamstress operation, Mm -hmm. like jewelry repair, like leather repair. So we've had to become experts in the kind of physical restoration of products. Now, Again, these were all things that we didn't realize we would have to do at the beginning, but they've become really major moats to any competitor trying to, to yeah. get in this. Because you know, what you learn after you rent 100 items is fundamentally different than what you learn after 100,000, after 10 million, after 50 million. And so you're able to... There's no way to short-circuit those learnings. And therefore, the ROI that's going to come from this incredible asset of inventory that we've built.
1: How about data on your customers? Are there customers that wear stuff harder? Um, <laughs> you know, is, is I mean, is it, I mean, obviously, if somebody trashes something, that's different. But are there customers that just you know, is there data on the customers that actually yeah, so affects every pricing or it- how you deal with customers?
0: If you're a subscriber, every time you return items to Rent the Runway, you have to give us data about if you've worn the item, how many times you've worn it, if you love it, if it fit you, where did it not fit you, was it in good quality? So we're able to take all of this user information, match it up with all of this inventory data, and use that to personalize the experience for all of our customers. So we tend to know when our customers are pregnant before they've told anyone else in their life because they tell us. They tell us what kind of job they have and how formal it is at their office, the fact that they're going to Miami this weekend, the fact that they have a birthday party next week, because if you're using it with such a high degree of frequency, you don't want to spend 10 minutes on the site every single time you come. You want to give us some quick information so that we could do a better job at personalizing the experience to you. And In fact, I think five years from now, we're not even going to have a website because it's going to be too much friction for a customer to interact through a website. You might be interacting through an Alexa-type device or through Mm -hmm. text message to say, hey, I need five new outfits for work this week. We'll send you great options, and you'll say, here, I choose options two, three, four. So we're trying to constantly meet the customer where she is, which is the number one thing that's important to her is her own time. How do we maximize her time? Because not only do we have more women working than at any point in human history, so 75 million professional women in this country, we also still as women do 85% of the work around the house, we do 90% of childcare, and therefore, the t- our time has become an even more precious asset than it ever has been. And so, acknowledging that, having that customer level empathy in how we think about product innovation is really important to the future of our subscription.
1: So, let's, let's shift gears a little bit. I want to talk about the landscape of women entrepreneurs. Um, you know, female founded companies, I think, are having a moment, there's more focus. I think that's a very good thing. Um, Still an uphill battle to get initial seed funding. You know We've created something here called Launch at GS to try to make a more concerted effort to, found, to fund female-founded companies. Describe your own experience with this, and as the landscape's evolving, how could it evolve more quickly? How can, how can capital that exists potentially be more aggressive in increasing the diversity of where it's going? Um, and, and not just gender diversity, but also you know, ethnic, racial diversity too. Talk a little bit about your views on this.
0: Well, I, I think that maybe female founders are having a moment in the media, but that isn't correlated with dollars. Yep. So only 2% of dollars are going to women, and even less are going to people of color, even less are going to people that come from poorer backgrounds. So what that really means is we're not funding a diversity of ideas. So my fundamental belief is that the very best founders are ones that have personally experienced a problem. And we have a set of entrepreneurs in this country that, and to to couple that for a second, entrepreneurship is the nexus of innovation, of job creation, of job growth all over the world. So we have a set of entrepreneurs that represent a more homogeneous slice of America right now. They tend to represent the wealthy, they tend to represent people from more educated backgrounds, people from the coasts, people from Ivy League schools, and therefore the businesses that are launching are not doing their best to serve the full demographics of our country. And yes, I I think about Rent the Runway. I built Rent the Runway and I'm one of, I was able to, I've been able to raise over $400 million in capital. But beyond being a woman, I do come from all of those, that Ivy League background, that more wealthy background I wasn't equipped as a founder to represent the ills of society because I haven't experienced them myself. And so if you think about the problem that we have, why this is so dire, it's not just about women. It's not just about people of color. It's that we are not funding ideas that are actually going to change this country because we're not funding the people who are capable of changing them, of coming up with those ideas. And so this is something that needs to change. It can't change quickly enough. I think that you have capital being distributed and run by a very small selection of people. A lot of those people happen to be very homogeneous themselves. And if you are gonna make one investment a year, You tend to want to invest in something that you feel personal emotion towards, which is why it was harder to raise money for Rent the Runway. Because even though this is revolutionary that we're putting the closet in the cloud, you know, a lot of men really couldn't understand the power that comes from clothing. How women feel like clothing is a suit of armor for them. it was so much harder for me to raise $400 million of capital because I had to convince people to go outside of what was personally resonant to them. So simple solution, get more diverse set of investors so that a more diverse set of ideas are personally resonant to them. And we address ideas that can actually be applicable to everyone who lives in this country and everyone in the world.
1: Yeah, so that's, I mean, it's, look, that resonates, that resonates, that resonates very strongly. I think about, you know, our own efforts to distribute capital. When you look at launch, you know, we've got 50 women, you know, here that are looking to looking to disperse that capital, and they're taking responsibility for that. But the point about economic differentials, um, I think, is a good one, but it's it's tough. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I I'd, I'd love to hear, because it's something we think a lot about at Goldman Sachs, when you get into distributing the diversity of economic strata in terms of how you deploy capital, you know, that, becomes, you know, that becomes a very difficult thing um, because generally capital is coming from a source and you've got to find ways to get more diverse in the context of who can distribute capital. And that's, that's a much more complicated problem.
0: Yeah, I think, though, so that if we made a more concerted effort in those sources of capital to diversify the set of investors who are sitting there, we're talking about eight people who make decisions over billions of dollars of capital being distributed per year
1: yeah, you're, from one. You're firm. talking about, you're talking about the venture community. I'm very, talking about the venture, very community. I'm talking way. about
0: the growth capital community initially mm-hmm. because those are the sources of capital that are going to help you get your idea off the ground. So I don't even like percentages when they say, okay, well, 2% of dollars are going to women. What, What's also happening is that the checks that are being cut for women, for those 2%, on average are much smaller than their equivalent male founders at the same stage. So let's say I get a million dollars in my seed round and a male founder gets $2 million in his seed round. He has an extra, he has double the amount of capital to accelerate his idea. He has double the amount of chances to fail, which you have to do a lot of in a startup is double the amount of chances to hire the wrong people and iterate. There was just a study that was released by Angels and Carta that said that whereas female founders represent 13% of founders in Silicon Valley, they only own 6% of the equity of Silicon Valley, which essentially means that you know, for the same work, they're getting half the equity, they have received half the dilution. I know in my own capital raising um, over history that the legal terms that were given to me at the very beginning of Rent the Runway, I believe were likely more onerous than terms that would have been given had I been a male founder. Now. I've renegotiated all of those, I'm in a much better position today. But what that means is, had anything gone wrong at the beginning of Rent the Run, would have been tougher. I would have been kicked out. The business would have been over. It would have been one strike and I'm out. And so we have to observe not just the dollars, we have to observe the amount of dollars, the legal terms, Control mechanisms within a company, are all of those things equivalent? And the problem with this industry is that it's very opaque. You know, we know that in in places, in industries that are opaque, you end up having more discrimination for underrepresented groups. So I think the only thing we can do is usher in a new wave of transparency, where even if there was anonymous sources of data, Everyone who's raised a seed fund, what is their gender? What terms have they received? If you were able to collect that data via law firms, via firms, and just see how you're stacking up to others, what salaries do people make? I think that that transparency would actually change the it's industry. A great, it's a great
1: idea, You know, it's, and it's easily solvable, but it's only easily solvable to the degree that everybody wants to put their data in the pot. Um, and I, I, I agree with you, that'd be a great thing if we could actually put the pressure on uh, you know, on the broad funding community to do that, I think it'd be a great idea.
0: Yeah, or even just male founders and allies to say, okay, here's what my compensation is. Here's the terms that I was able to negotiate in this in my Series B, and stack them up even anonymously versus what other people are able to achieve.
1: It's mm, a great idea. Let me ask you one more question before we um, we uh, we go to a lightning round, if that's okay. You had um, you had talked. You've talked a lot about disparity in company benefits policies. And you know, I think what you're doing there is really terrific, and the things that you're talking about are terrific. Um, and you talked a lot about how you inadvertently created different classes of employees in your own company, and you now have worked to rectify that. Talk a little bit about your view on those issues and what you've done at Rent the Runway.
0: Yeah, so until a few months ago, we had a different set of benefits for my salaried employees than we had for... Rent the Runway's hourly employees. Hourly employees are employees who work in our warehouse, on our customer service team, and in our retail stores. And what I had set up was a carbon copy of what best in class companies do. I was competing for the very best talent, and I thought that I'm competing for this talent, and therefore I need to be super generous when it comes to Parental leave and paid family sick leave and bereavement leave and sabbatical policies for this population, and I'll do whatever the minimum required is for this population. And I got to a point, given the number one, the political climate that we're in, where I feel like, you know, I can't rely as much on Washington or government to make the moral choice. And number two, I got to a point where. Rent the Runway had scaled dramatically and I recognized I'm now um, managing a team of 1,500 people and their families. And I have through this lack of thinking through the implications of my own actions, I've basically created the perpetuation of income inequality in my own company. The perpetuation of lack of flexibility in the sense that we have a full team of people who have made rent the runway into the multi-billion dollar success it is today. And it's not because of just my corporate employees. It's because of my whole team that's gotten us to this place. So why is it that a life event for someone in my warehouse is being considered differently than a life event for someone who is in my corporate office and I was thinking that we already distinguish between myself and someone who works in a warehouse. It's called salary. I make a much higher salary than folks that work in my warehouse. But my having a child is actually not more important than anyone in my warehouse having a child, or my parent passing away is not more important. So what we decided to do is we decided to equalize benefits across the company. And so that my hourly employees receive the exact same benefits now as my salaried employees across gender, across every division of the company. And what it unlocked for us over the last few months is actual data that a lot of people had been leaving Rent the Runway for reasons that had to do with lack of benefits. So someone would have someone fall sick in their family and they were the only one to care for their family member. And they had to make a choice between their job or caring for their sick mom. And you know what, the mom is gonna win 100% of the time. So there were these hidden costs to even not having these benefits, and there were actual costs as well, so we've already saved money off of this, because the cost of actual training, the cost training, of training, recruiting, attrition, recruiting absolutely. Recruiting hourly employees is unbelievably high. So I think that this was really a first step in recognition that just because everyone else is doing something, just because something is an established business practice, it doesn't mean that it's right. And we need to inspect everything that we do and realize if we're making the moral choice, realize are we acting in a high valued way? I think that if you think about the competition for talent right now, People are choosing to spend their time at places that represent their values. And the value set of equality and of treating everyone with that level of respect for their life, there's nothing more that I want my own employees of Rent the Runway to think of our company for. It's
1: terrific. So I'm going to ask you a couple quick lightning round questions, and then we'll wrap up. Any business that you see out there that you're really excited about?
0: I'm really excited about this new company mirror, which is an in-home workout on a really flat mirror. So as opposed to getting a you know, a large Peloton bike in your very small apartment or my very small apartment, this seems much more conserving space to have all of these exercise classes for you at home. Right. I, I'm really interested with what's happening with at-home fitness and how it's disrupting The wellness market right now. Really,
1: really interesting business. What television shows are you currently streaming?
0: I'm currently obsessed with Bojack Horseman. Hmm. (laughs) That show has been a major surprise to me. And I watched actually, I watched Nanette, the special, the comedy special by Hannah Gatsby recently. If you have not watched this, it's the top hour of television that I've ever watched in my life.
1: Wow. I'm going to have to go watch that. That's quite an it endorsement. It was
0: a, a piece of art that, I mean, I, was hist- I thought it was a comedy special. I ended up hysterically crying for the last half an hour of the, the piece, but it was unbelievable.
1: Last book you read?
0: I read that uh, Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos, bad, bad, bad Blood. Yeah.
1: My That's God. the last book I read, too. It was a soap <laughs> opera. It was unbelievable. It was incredible. Role model you most admire? Somebody you really look up to.
0: Howard Schultz. So talk about making equality and equal opportunity a issue before it was sexy or popular to do so. I mean, the thing that I don't get is, this man has been giving health, free healthcare and free college education to his employees in retail stores of Starbucks for decades, and obviously it works, right? He's able to build and grow a huge successful global operation. Why haven't more people followed suit?
1: Well, it's interesting that you, you say that. There are a lot of companies that do a variety of things like that. I don't think companies are great at talking about it. I was at dinner last night, and we talked about United Technologies, UTC, who's reporting earnings today, and somebody pointed out that they are the largest provider of college scholarships of any corporation in the world because they basically had decided that in order to get the workforce that they needed in the context of what they were doing, that they had to do that. They've been quietly doing it for decades. Nobody knows. And so it's there needs to be there needs to be more yeah. of that as you you know highlight more of what Howard Schultz is doing, more of what somebody like UTC is doing. Um, and I think also businesses have a responsibility to talk about the things they're doing.
0: Right, and showing that's that it's actually are, great for the shifted. bottom line. It's, great. it's, it's not it's just great. about morality, it's also financially astute to make it's, these it's decisions. The
1: right, it's the right business decision. And the last one, best best one piece of advice for an aspiring entrepreneur.
0: Just go for it. It's People- good advice. People are way too fearful of the worst case scenario, you catastrophize a situation and the reality is that everyone has a lot more resilience than they give themselves credit for. And so to have less fear of failure and to just be aggressive about following that dream you have for your life, and it's not just about your career. Like going for what you want in your personal life, going for what you want in your social life. Like it's just never going to happen unless you jump into the deep end of the pool and go for
1: it. Jen, thank you very much. This was wonderful. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you.
2: This podcast was recorded on October 23rd, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed.